Our gospel reading today comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And so Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, and they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that we, the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's bow our head in prayer. Lord, I come before you humbly today from a platform that I surely don't deserve. Thank you for the season of Lent, and I pray that you will put the words in my mouth that you want your people to hear. You are in control, Lord. I am your servant. Let me be your voice. Amen. You may be seated. So before we dive into Luke 20, I want to give you a little background on what's happening here. At the end of Luke 19, Jesus enters the temple and he sees something disgraceful. Visitors are being robbed by those within the church who are jacking up the exchange rate on currency swapping in order to profit themselves. People are also taking advantage of how busy it is, and so they're selling things in the temple for their own gain, for their own profit. So the temple is obviously being used for purposes other than bringing glory to God, and Jesus hates that. Scripture says that Jesus entered the temple like a refiner's fire, tossing tables, throwing people out, refined the temple back into something that brought glory to God. And not only did he do these things, he healed the blind and he healed the broken. And as it says in the Gospel of Matthew, children cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the temple rulers hated this. They had their comfortable way of life and it had been overthrown. 
No longer were they able to sell and take advantage of travelers financially. Even worse, Jesus has hurt their pride. The rulers are supposed to be held in the highest respect amongst the people. They're supposed to be the religious authority. Instead, this prophet comes in and he walks all over them. Jesus comes in, he ruins their business and steals their thunder. And worse yet, the people love him for it. They're literally singing his praises. Who does this guy think he is? So what did those rulers do? Well, as per usual, they challenged his authority. Uh, the first two verses of Luke 20, again, are one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So Jesus is already teaching in the temple by the time the rulers approach him. What authorized you to do this, they ask? Who gave you the authority to teach? Tensions have reached the boiling point. The rulers want Jesus killed, and Jesus knows that soon they will get their wish. Spoiler alert, you'll hear about that in the next couple of weeks. In the media today, or at work, or wherever you are, here especially in the US, political correctness is king. People are forced to walk on eggshells in an attempt to avoid offending someone or hurting somebody's feelings. We don't want to say the wrong thing and get in trouble. You see it on Twitter. People said the wrong thing years ago and they're getting in trouble for it today. Sometimes, and perhaps many times for some of you, this even prevents us from telling someone the truth, from being honest with our friends, from telling, something they need, the, telling them something they need to hear. When Jesus' authority was questioned here, he wasn't concerned about hurting feelings or being politically correct. So rather than simply answering the question posed to him by the rulers, listen to what he says in Luke 23 through 8. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I came from. This is crazy. Jesus is essentially saying, what does it matter to you? He's putting their authority in question, so he traps them. Essentially, he's accusing them of being, being solely concerned with the opinions of men. These rulers didn't respect John the Baptist, and Jesus knows that. So if they say his authority was from heaven, they will be caught in their unbelief. But if they say Jesus or John's authority was not from heaven, they will be stoned outside the temple by those whom they're trying to impress. So they go with option C and admit that they don't know where John came from, which of course is a weak answer, but it's less shameful than admitting they were wrong. Plus they get to keep their lives. So since they didn't answer this question, Jesus refused to answer theirs. And then Jesus doubles down and tells this parable. Luke 29. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. Okay, so a man plants a vineyard. Matthew 21, expands upon this a little more. 
There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and he built a tower. So this property owner has done an extensive amount of work to establish this vineyard of his. Everything's been prepared. The seeds have been planted. The walls are up. Watchtowers in place to keep eyes on the vineyard. Now all the property owner needs is someone or a group of people to watch over the vineyard while he is gone to farm it. So he brings in some renters. I rent a house in Mount Lake Terrace. I've been renting for the past uh, five or so years of my life. Um, I'd like to buy a house someday, uh, but I'm not sure if you've seen the housing market. I haven't won the lottery yet or married someone rich, so I'm still kind of waiting on that. Um, but as I live in my house, there are some things that I could change or that I wish I could change, right? It'd be nice to knock out the wall that divides the kitchen and the living room to make the house feel a little more spacious, get a little more light. I would paint the walls something other than sky blue. That's what they are, the whole house. I would change some of the light fixtures in the house to try and improve the look. I would potentially build a garden in the backyard. We've got a big backyard, though, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure why I would do that since I've never successfully grown a single plant in my whole life. <laughs> but you know what I can't do? Any of that. Why? Because I'm not the owner, right? It's not my house. I'm renting it. This vineyard is the owner's property, and he leased it out to tenants. These tenants are not the owners of the property. And the parallel is drawn between these tenants and the religious rulers whom Jesus is talking to. These rulers do not own the temple. They do not own scripture. It had been leased to them. It has been leased to us. And as difficult as this is maybe to hear, you do not own your life. You belong to God. You belong to God. Your bodies, your money, these things have been leased to us by God, our creator who owns us and everything we have ever seen because he created all of it. Moving ahead, verses 9 and part of 10. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. He sent his servant, right? We say that Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior, our King, our Master. That makes us the Lord's servants. We come here to church on Sunday or various other days of the week for a lot of you, not to be served, but to serve our church and our Lord. What God says, we do because he is our Savior and we are happy to submit to his will. He sent some sinner like us to go collect his due, right? So there's likely an agreement here. The property owner buys the land, builds on the land, gets the land completely ready to be farmed and reaped. These tenants come, they live there, they farm the land, and both property owner and tenants share in the rewards. He has given them plenty of time to work the land, and the time has finally come to receive their rent check, for them to give him what he is owed. I'm sure there are some of you here who are property owners and lease out houses or land to people just like this guy in the parable. Does everyone always pay rent right on time? Would be nice, Would be easy. But the renters need to fulfill their end of the deal. Instead, listen to what happens. After he sent a servant, but the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty handed. 
Let me tell you, if I ever owned a property, Lord willing, and this was how the tenants responded, I'd lose my mind. Not only did they refuse to pay, but they beat the guy who came to collect before sending him away. What would you do? You'd evict him, right? Call authorities, get him out of there. We would show no mercy. Not only are they robbing you, not giving you what they owe, but they just assaulted your worker. They need to go. And of course, we wouldn't try the same thing again, would we? We don't have that much grace. We don't have that kind of patience and mercy. But we read on at what happens. And so he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So sure enough, same thing happens again, except this time it's escalated. Not only did they beat him, but they treated him shamefully. I admit, maybe I misspoke a minute ago when I used a collective statement. Maybe some of you in here would have given those tenants another shot at getting it right. Surely not after the second time though, right? These tenants didn't learn, nor were they remorseful. In fact, they even stepped up their game and humiliated this guy as well. But again, we read on. And he sent yet a third. This takes some guts. Also a level of grace that probably none of us can possibly understand. He sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Now the text says they wounded him, but if you look at the Greek language, you could also say that they traumatized this servant, which is another escalation in hostility. So how would we respond? How would we respond? The reality is this. That is exactly what God's people did with the prophets sent to Israel. Remember back from the Old Testament, they ignored them. The Israelites were hostile towards them. They beat them. They forced them to flee the country, forced them to hide from those looking to kill them. The prophets were assaulted. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was stoned. Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, all killed for being the messenger, for being God's servant. Israel wouldn't receive the word of God. Yet God's grace transcends anything that we could ever understand. And he continued to send prophets to his beloved people, despite those beloved people clearly failing to love him back. How deep is God's love for us? At this point, the owner of the vineyard would have to feel tempted to simply destroy the vineyard, to burn it to the ground. It would have been difficult, but given the circumstances, it sure doesn't seem like his investment is reaping any rewards, right? How many more servants must he send? Why would that change anything? But the master does not send another servant. No, instead he does something even more surprising. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. That's crazy. How could God be so loving of his people that despite having his, his servants tortured, chased around, and killed by the people he loves, people like us, how could he love us so much that he would send his own son? This is no longer about the Israelites living back before Christ. 
or the rulers in the church whom he is speaking to. This message is directed at all of us. Saying that it happens every day would probably be an overstatement because sometimes I'm just too blind to see it. But I'm constantly surprised by the grace God has shown me. If you knew everything about me, and nobody on this earth does, you would physically remove me from the stage, you would throw me out of the church, because my sin should disqualify me from even being allowed to live amongst God's creation. It's totally shocking to me that God would continue to come after me in the loving way that he does, because he knows better than anyone that I don't deserve it. Maybe some of you can relate. Yet he continues to send people into our lives. He sends preachers, family members, co-workers, even strangers, in an attempt to get us to acknowledge him and live our lives in a way that reflects that, in an attempt to get us to pay him his dues. And he allows us to come back to him regardless of how much time we've spent away from him or even spent against him, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul. He wants us so bad that he sent his son to the front lines for us which returns us to the parable. So what happens? Surely the tenants would obey now. Surely these evil people would turn from their sinful ways. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they huddle up. And they come to the conclusion that if they kill the only heir, two things are going to happen, right? We got one, the owner will stop trying to collect what he is due and will let them totally control the vineyard. And two, when the owner dies with no heir, they will inherit the vineyard. How does that make sense? How could they possibly assume that there wouldn't be consequences? Well, that's what sin does to us. When we sin, we are, truly, are we truly considering the consequences that will come from it? Not usually. That's how we justify doing the things we know we shouldn't. Sin is, has eternal consequences. It takes us farther and farther from God and from who God has called us to be. People think that maybe if they just ignore God long enough, they can be in complete control of their life, that God will stop intervening, that one day that small voice in their head will simply stop. But God will never relinquish his authority over his creation. God will never relinquish his authority over us. So once again, we return to these rulers of the temple. They are convinced at this time that if they kill Jesus, then the temple will be returned to them. They can go back to running it how they choose, turning God's sanctuary into a profitable place for themselves, teaching the people whatever they want, because they will be restored in the people's minds as chief theology experts or whatever they wanted themselves called. But they fail to understand that God will never give up his authority over us. We can fight God tooth and nail. We can spend our whole lives fighting God, but he will forever have authority over us. Either you will submit to him while you are alive or you will be forced to face him in death. Either way, he has authority over you. Verse 15, so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. It's important to recognize here that not only is Jesus referencing the history of Israel with the prophets, 
He's also prophesying himself. A few days later, Jesus was betrayed, beaten in the city, taken outside the city, and hung on the cross and killed. He was telling the rulers to their faces exactly what was going to happen to him. What will the owner do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And finally, it makes sense to us, right? You're renting a house and you send someone to go collect the rent. First person is beaten. Second person is humiliated and beaten. The third person is traumatized and beaten. Then you send your own son to go collect, thinking that surely they will respect my own blood. But no, he is beaten, he's killed, and his body's dumped in a ditch somewhere. That's the last straw. You take care of those evil tenants, and you give the land to someone worthy of it, someone who will pay you your dues. Jesus declares that God will take the kingdom of away from these wicked elders, chief priests, rulers, and he will give it to others. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says, the vineyard will be given to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season, those who follow the commandments. The kingdom of God will be given to those who are faithful, who are obedient, and love God with everything they got. Money, power, knowledge, going to church sometimes, growing up with Christian parents, having some Christian friends, these things ain't getting you into heaven. Remember the rulers of the church are already angry with Jesus after he stole their thunder, and this makes them really mad. Second half of verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? Surely not. Surely you don't mean us. Do they sound guilty? Here, Jesus escalates it even further, essentially accusing the rulers of the church of not knowing their Bibles. What then is it that is written? Or in other words, as so-called theological experts, don't you know what your Bible says? Haven't you read your Bible? They have, but knowing and obeying are two very different things and they have not been obeying. Continuing with verse 17. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is a passage from Isaiah that Jesus is quoting here. And despite all these good things that God has built on this cornerstone, people are still willing to reject it. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Some of you may not know this about me, uh, but I love sports, I always have. When I was young, um, I got a Walkman for my birthday when I was eight or nine. Uh, it was a pretty cool gift to get as a kid. I could listen to cassette tapes, though I never actually had any of those. And I could listen to AM and FM radio. And at night, when I was supposed to go to bed, I would smuggle my Walkman into my room and hide under my covers listening to the Mariners game way past my bedtime. Sorry, mom and dad. And it is very rare that I give a talk anywhere in youth group or wherever without a sports reference tossed in. Students don't always get it, but that's fine. Uh, and here we are, I almost made it through today without it, but uh, here we go. Sort of like we've twice now referred to the book of Isaiah this morning, I would like to talk about a basketball player named 
Isaiah. Isaiah Thomas is a local guy, born in Tacoma, went to Curtis High School, played for the University of Washington. An extremely talented basketball player. He's strong, fast, he could shoot. And if the game was tied, with time running out, you wanted the ball in his hand because you knew that he was gonna find a way to win it for you. There's only one problem. Isaiah's five feet nine, that's it. So despite all of his high school and college success and accolades, he gets picked dead last in the NBA draft. Why? Well, because he can only go left and because he's too short. He gets drafted by Sacramento and plays very well for a few years before getting sold to Phoenix for pennies on the dollar. He plays well in Phoenix for a year before once again being traded to Boston. Meanwhile, many analysts are simply looking at Isaiah as a gimmick whose game is unsustainable and he's probably reached his ceiling. He's too short to be a star in the league. In Boston, he's the first guy off the bench and he's lighting it up. Eventually, he gets promoted to a starter and then carries the Boston Celtics into the Eastern Conference Finals before getting hurt and missing those games. During the first round of the playoffs, his sister was killed in a car accident and Isaiah is emotionally destroyed, but still manages to lead the team in scoring, including hanging 53 in the second round on the Wizards. He's struggled with that injury ever since and unfortunately hasn't been able to play well since he got hurt. But Isaiah Thomas, who was an afterthought on the day of the draft, who had critics his entire career, who had been rejected by every single team in the NBA twice on draft night, then rejected twice more when he was traded, had become the best player on one of the most storied franchises in all of professional sports. By the way, since trading Thomas, neither the Suns nor the Kings have made the playoffs. The stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. The player the teams rejected will wreak havoc on the league. But more importantly, the Son of God, rejected by those in power, will become the savior of the entire world. But, and this is important to remember, that this is convicting us as well. If you continue reading in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, say this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. It's pretty perceptive, right? But they again feared the people, so they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So the rulers are so upset that they send spies to watch Jesus and catch him if he slips up. Most of you know the story. Shortly thereafter, Jesus would be held at trial and all the people shouted out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And as much as I would like to think otherwise, I would probably be standing amongst the crowd shouting the same thing at the top of my lungs. Because I am self-righteous, I fall into temptation of the ways of the world, and because I am a sinner. Fortunately, God continues to strive for me and to strive for all of you. He desperately wants us to bear fruit, as mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. He yearns for our love and for our obedience. May God give us the conviction and the strength to want and pursue those same things.
May we give God his dues. Let us pray. Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned against you in thought, word and deed, with the things I have done and the things I have left undone. Today, as we go, I pray that we would be obedient to your will out of love for creating us, providing for us, and sending your Son to save us. May you be our master, and may we be your faithful tenants, your servants, Lord, tending your flock and taking care of all you have given us. In your name, amen.